0: Well, hello everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping into Scripture again today. Today we are going to be in Philippians three, so we are going to be reading from one of Paul's letters to the churches to the church in Philippi. Um, one thing that kind of characterizes this letter is it's often known as a a letter of joy or you'll see the word rejoice or joy a lot in this book and one thing that paul was able to rejoice with with the philippians he did have some difficult times when he was in philippi um, but they were one of the uh, chief churches that funded him so they were one of the few churches of all the ones that he founded and visited that also contributed to him financially so that's a reason to rejoice right at least for Paul. So um, it's, it's interesting to see Paul's journey and how he funds his own ministry at times through tent making. Um, other times he kind of just goes without and then there's churches that partner with him and so we can see kind of all the ways that the Lord provided for him. But what we're going to look at here in chapter three is we're going to kind of look at what it means or what it looks like to reorient what is valuable to us. Paul is going to talk a lot about what is valuable to certain groups, what had previously been valuable to him in his life, and how Christ turns that on its head, that knowing Jesus turns what's valuable to us on its head. So that's really what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be in chapter three. I'll start by reading verses two and three, and then we'll go from there. So verse two says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So it starts out, he has these three lookout statements, the Greek word blepite, and it's repeated in the original language and in English. So there's this big emphasis on look out, keep an eye out, make sure you're watching out for these people. And he ends on this one that says those who mutilate the flesh. Um, So what he's referring to there is he's referring to uh, circumcision and specifically as those who mutilate the flesh, as those who find some sort of identity in circumcision alone. So we kind of get that clue from what he then says in verse three, saying we are the circumcision. So you may remember that circumcision was this physical sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and therefore all of Abraham's descendants. But what Paul is kind of speaking about here is those who use circumcision as basically their excuse to say, well, it doesn't matter. I am one of God's people because look, I've got this physical sign, the sign of the covenant. And so when he says in verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision. You, if you read other versions, so this is ESV, if you read other versions, they'll sometimes add the word true. So they're kind of interpreting a little bit of what Paul means there um, that Those who believe in Christ are the true circumcision. So what exactly does he mean by that? Well, he talks about this in Romans 2 as well, verses 25 through 29. I'll read that real quick. It says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? is and what we can understand them from philippians 3 is he's saying that the true quote-unquote circumcision are the ones who believe in jesus the actual physical act doesn't do anything to help a person keep the law so his point is you could be circumcised but if you don't keep the law it's better for someone who's uncircumcised who keeps the law like they're quote unquote, circumcision is of the heart and that is more valuable before God. So this is one thing that the Jewish nation had put a lot of their value in is that they had this sign of the covenant. And so they presuppose that even if they broke the law, they were still covenant people. What Paul is saying, those who are truly the circumcision, the true Israel, true Jews, are those who have circumcision of the heart. And that is, uh, he talks about in Philippians 3, those of us who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus is the ones are the people who are the true circumcision. So in Philippians three, when he says we are the circumcision, he's referring to believers. He was referring to people who have placed their faith in Jesus. So those who put confidence in the flesh are only concerned with the outward sign. And what we're going to see here in this next section, if anybody could put confidence in the outward signs in the, Uh, how he looked on the outside, it was Paul. So let's look here in verse four through six. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, Paul is decrying those who would put their confidence in the flesh. And he's like, if anybody was going to be able to put their confidence in the flesh and what they do and these outward signs, these things that don't penetrate to the heart level, it would be me. So he starts out, he says, I was circumcised on the day. You're wondering, oh, is that early? Is that late? Right on the dot. That's when you're supposed to be circumcised if you were born in the nation of Israel, eighth day. So he says then of the people, of Israel. And so we know that Israel were the original 12 tribes um, after and these were the sons of of Israel and these 12 tribes were um, named after them and formed in them. And so he's saying he's of the people of Israel, descended of Abraham, children of the promise, right? But then we also know that at one point in history, there is a break after um, Solomon dies that the 10 Northern tribes are then called Israel and they are separated from the two southern tribes called Judah. So at this point in history, if you're to say I'm of the people of Israel, you could see somebody kind of you know put their finger up, like, wait a second, I got a question. Are you of the ten northern tribes? Which the ten northern tribes, um, that when they were taken by the Assyrians, they did not have the same kind of return that we see uh the southern kingdom is gonna have. So it's uh more of a the people of the northern tribes became very mixed with, um, the nations around them, um, both societally and also, uh, biologically, you know, um, not having that true, like pure Jewish blood, they were mixed with nations around them. So these are uh, people that, and we see in the new Testament, Samaritans are part of this group. That's why there's such animosity between Samaritans and people from, uh, from Judah, from the original tribes of Judah, because, uh, these 10 northern tribes were seen as no longer truly the people of the promise because they had been intermarried and societally had become intermingled with other nations. So you can see if he says, I'm of the people of Israel, somebody says, well, wait, are you the 10 tribes, northern tribes of Israel? Because, you know, we don't really recognize them as truly Israel. And he says, no, 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 not one of those of the tribe of Benjamin. So Judah, which became a the southern nation, was also the name of one of the tribes. The other tribe that joined with Judah, you guessed it, it was Benjamin. So the people of Judah and Benjamin were seen as the people who were the most closely resembled the people of promise because when they were taken by Babylon in 586 BC, they were eventually brought back under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. And so they were seen as a people that returned from exile and they never had this uh, cultural Intermingling, this biological intermingling. So these were viewed as, you know, higher quality um, people of the promise. So again, he's got another notch in his belt there. He says a Hebrew of Hebrews. and He says as to the law, a Pharisee. Somebody asked him the question, "Oh, do you care about the law? Do you study the law? Do you follow the law?" He said, uh, "Yeah, as much as anyone. I was a Pharisee." So he's saying. I could boast in that. If if my boasting is in the flesh, if I if there's a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have it. I was a Pharisee. I cared about the law. I followed the law. And then he says, as to zeal, somebody asked, well, were you zealous for the Lord? He was like, I was so zealous that I was persecuting the church when I thought that it was against what God had for us. And then he goes on to say, as far as the law, righteousness under the law, blameless. So this idea, not that he had never, done anything wrong because obviously we know he had just like we all have but basically from this what could be reasonably expected what uh the maybe the religious leaders would look at on the outside no one could say that paul had done anything wrong so he says i've got it all this is everything this is the boasting in the flesh i could boast no one else can boast like i can so that's what paul is explaining here he's like If there are people who want to boast in the flesh, no one can boast more than me. But what does he say? There's no reason to boast in the flesh. The flesh is not where true circumcision is found. So as we read this, I think it's good to ask ourselves the question. And it's good for me to ask myself this question. Where is my boasting in the flesh? Where is your boasting in the flesh? What does it look like for you to... Look at some outward, to have some outward part of you, some quality about you that you feel like makes you more righteous or makes you uh, more holy or more worthy of what Jesus has done. I think for me, as I think about it, um, if I was to go with my boasting in the flesh, I'd probably talk about, you know, I'm was a I'm a seminary graduate. I went to seminary. Obviously, I care a lot about the Bible and about Jesus. I spent time going to school for it. I I work in full-time ministry. Well, obviously I've got something to boast in, in the flesh, right? But here's the thing, like in me specifically, those things, what those can turn to is a pride and not the kind of pride that makes me think like, oh, I'm better than everyone else. But it's kind of this resistance to admit uh, that I've done something wrong. So like, oh, I've been to seminary. I I work in ministry. I I should be better than that. This shouldn't be something that I'm dealing with so what that leads to in me when i'm operating out of my fleshliness when i'm operating out of trying to look good is i would prefer not to admit that i had done something wrong not admit to myself or to others because that goes against what god's call my life is and i should be beyond that right that's kind of the boasting in the flesh i think that this brought up in my heart as I was reading this, what would be something that I would list out and what the truth behind that boasting is. There's no boasting in that. There's no reason to expect that a person who's been to seminary, works in full-time ministry doesn't also need to have regular admission of faults daily, moment by moment. So maybe that's not yours. Maybe you didn't go to seminary or work in full-time ministry, but um, some other things that maybe, Uh, I'll bring up that maybe fit with you, um, abstinence from certain sins. So maybe there are certain sin struggles that you don't struggle with or have never struggled with, and that's your boasting in the flesh. Maybe you've got a robust Bible reading and prayer life. Maybe you even add some spiritual life books on top of that. Maybe you're boasting in the flesh is that um, you can say, I've read my Bible every day for a year straight without missing a single time. I pray X amount of time per day. Uh, Maybe your boast is giving and generosity. Maybe you can point to the amount of money that you've given and the causes you've given it to. And maybe that's cause for boasting in the flesh for you. And again, all of these things uh, are good. All of these things to abstain from sin, to read our Bible, to pray, to give, to be generous. These are all good things. But where is the heart of it, right? Where are we finding our value in those things? Or is the value that we find in Christ, is that the overflow? Of the value we find in Christ, that we abstain from sin, that we read our Bible, that we pray, that we give, and it all comes out of who Jesus is? Or is that a way that we prop ourselves up, that we give ourselves reason to say, look how great I am. How can I have a righteousness that comes from my own self, That this pride that can come up? So we know that that shouldn't be our attitude to have this boasting in things that we do. So What should our attitude be instead? Let's read back in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says whatever reason for boasting he had, and anything else as well, even maybe things that maybe he didn't want to boast in, but maybe that still were a big part of his life. He said these things are rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. So this word rubbish is a very crude Greek word, skubala. And it is a a crude word for human waste. And I will leave it there. Um, It is not a nice word. It doesn't just mean trash, like we would just talk about the trash can, like this is, a, he's being very, very uh, dramatic about this. He's, he's purposely showing that this is a big deal, that this is how little I think of these things now because of the joy that's found, the worth that's found in knowing Christ. So Paul tells us our righteousness is in Christ, that it's from God and that it's through Christ faith so this righteousness comes from the person of jesus the person and work of jesus and it's this righteousness that is rooted in the godhead and it says and it says here in verse nine it depends on faith and it comes through faith in christ so that's where our value is found that's what our attitude should be instead that any boasting we have is rooted in the person of jesus righteousness of god And it comes by faith, not anything I did of my own, but only faith in what has been done for me, the rescue that has been made possible through Jesus. So Paul's goal, he says, is to know Christ and share in his sufferings, to become like him in death and ultimately be resurrected like Jesus, to be with Jesus. So that's what his goal is. It used to be I can do all these things and I can look really good. But now that's not my goal. My goal is to know Christ, to share in his suffering. So not to look good on the outside, to suffer on the outside, become like him in death, to die to who he is, to who he was, and ultimately to look forward to this resurrection that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And we know that our hope is ultimately realized in the resurrection when we are with Jesus, when all the saints from present and past uh, and future are resurrected to be with Jesus. He recognizes that as the ultimate hope made possible by Jesus. So when we look at this, I think verse seven, whatever gain I had, you know, he's talking about those, uh, that list of accomplishments before that. In verse eight, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss. So I think sometimes there are things that maybe we recognize aren't uh, maybe they don't give us reason for boasting, but maybe they're sort of comforts like that we have. Maybe there are things in our lives that maybe we wouldn't put on our resume, but we know that they compete for our heart in terms of, do I really consider this as loss? Some some examples, um, maybe money. Money is uh, a challenging one not to... Let it consume you because as time goes on and you have more financial responsibilities than the amount of money you have and the amount of money that's coming in becomes more and more important as these responsibilities mount, but it can eventually become to a place where everything is moving toward that, toward the idea of gaining wealth or avoiding debt and that that can become something that we do not consider loss, that we consider very important and competing with Christ. Big one, I know that I really struggle with this one, comfort just the idea that, man, pursuing Christ sounds really hard, right? Becoming like him in his death, sharing in his sufferings. Ah, It's really comfortable if I could not have to do that, right? We find comfort to be something that can be difficult to let go of when we are pursuing Jesus' Uh, status or success. Maybe our desire is to be To be known for some accomplishment, even if that accomplishment is something in a spiritual realm. Maybe um, it's this status, this success that we could have that we want other people to see. We want to be seen as successful people, people who are doing the right thing. Uh, Maybe it's the opinions of others just in general. We want people to think well of us. We want them to like us. Um, And the reality is, we talked about it in Uh, service uh, a couple weeks ago that Jesus told his disciples, the world will hate you because of me. The world will not welcome you with open arms when you follow me wholeheartedly. That the world, those who are apart from God, will not have a strong, a great opinion of us if we are truly following Jesus. And Jesus says it's because they hated me first, but it will turn toward you. Maybe the opinions of others and our, our fear of a negative opinion, maybe that is something that we have trouble counting as loss in the face of who Jesus is. But as we move through 12 through 16, Paul kind of gives us a, a a game plan to move forward. So he counts these things as loss and he does it because the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So what can we move toward what can we do here in verse 12? It says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do for getting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul is admitting, I don't have this all figured out. I'm not in the place where I want to be. I am not um, resurrected from the dead currently with Jesus. I don't think I'm walking perfectly in that, but here is what I do. I press on toward that goal. So what Paul is saying is that even even in the imperfection, even in the challenges, even in the times where he and we still find value in those things that are lost in comparison to knowing Christ, that what, what can we do? Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead is what he says. That's all we can do is to press forward in our faith. Now, that doesn't mean we hopefully leave a, a bunch of, Piles of rubbish, if you will, in uh, our path as we go, that that behind us, it's not just a wake of destruction, that we are willing to own up to the things that we've done, that we're able to not move past things without seeking forgiveness, having repentance, but that ultimately, knowing each day that comes, we have a new opportunity to pursue after Jesus, to pursue a lifestyle that puts Jesus at the center, that shows that knowing Christ is of ultimate value to us. And that is what Paul is talking about here. And he recognizes too, verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What a sweet sentiment that is to think that Christ Jesus has made us his own and he has. That's why we can say that he has this surpassing value. He has done what we could not do on our own. He has brought us into the family of God through his work on the cross, through his resurrection. He's made us his own. The only thing that we can do is try to live in that, to try to lay hold of that status. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. What we have attained is a faith in Christ. What we have attained is a future that we look toward when we will be with Jesus again, we have to hold true to that and pursue that day by day, not letting hopefully the troubles of this world weigh us down. And when we, I think when we talk about this too, when we think about what our boastings in the flesh are, what maybe those, uh, those things are that we have trouble casting aside and, and recognizing that knowing Christ is worth more than them. It's important that we continue to put in front of us who is this person that we're pursuing. That's, I think, why Bible reading daily, though it shouldn't be a reason for boasting in the flesh, right? Why it is so important, because we are reminded of the character of God, whether we're reading in the Old Testament and we see the character of God, whether reading in the Psalms, the minor prophets, wherever it is in the New Testament, the Gospels, the epistles. Hopefully what we're putting in front of us is... It's almost like the, the carrot that the more that we see who God is, when we see the revelation of Jesus, that we are just spurred on to say, yes, that's who I want to follow. That's who I want to consider everything as garbage for. I want to pursue him, to know him at all costs. I want to even share in his sufferings because I believe it's worth it. And that's what we have to do as we press forward toward that goal and that goal being that eventually we are with Jesus again. And before that, that we're living a life that shows who it is that we're chasing, that we are owning up to what the call of God is on our life. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God has this call for us in our lives and reading scripture, praying, being in community, These things help us remind or help remind us what is truly important, how valuable Jesus truly is. So as we go on, as we press forward in that call, I hope that we can rest in our identity in who Jesus is, knowing that he has made us his own, but that we can also see that not as an opportunity to rest on our laurels or to um, create for ourselves this buffer of Well, at least I do this, at least I don't do this. So that makes me worthy that we don't worry about that so much as much as what it looks like. What does it mean to know Christ, to share in his sufferings? And so ultimately, when we see him and we are resurrected, we do fully attain the future that is for us, that we can be proud of the work that he did through us.